Welcome to the Bulgarian History Podcast, Episode 41, The Empire Returns. Now, this month's new Patreon supporter is Rosa. So, big thanks to Rosa and, of course, to all my other supporters. You guys are amazing. And, yeah, consider uh, consider pledging. Even a dollar helps. But I want to get straight into things. So, last time, we left the Second Bulgarian Empire with two Tsars, each one ready to fight for their right to party. I mean rule. I meant their right to rule. <laughs> now, on the one hand, a Rus prince deprived of his country and forced to make his home in Hungary before seeing his daughter marry the former Tsar Mikhail II Asen. Now, Rostislav Mikhailovich is holed up in the great fortress at Vidin, having failed to take Tornovo himself. Arrayed against him is the recently acclaimed Mitso Asen, not a blood member of the Asen dynasty, but married to the daughter of Ivan Asen II. Now, with Nicaea, Serbia, Epirus, the Golden Horde, and Hungary all posing their own threats, what kind of civil war awaits awaits Bulgaria? Well, before we can answer that question, it's time for another character to enter the drama. Because, you see, Mitso may have had the support of some of the prominent figures in the southeast, but in Turnival, the boyars there refused to support either him or Rostislav. Instead, they backed a man named Konstantin Tich. He was a wealthy boyar with extensive land holdings, either around Skopje or Sofia, but somewhere around there. So why him? Why Konstantin? Well, he supposedly descended from the Serbian royal family. But besides that, we can only assume that he was popular and considered a figure of strength, at least someone the boyars could perhaps control. Honestly, it's hard to say. I'm, I'm, we've talked a lot about the boyars and what their interests are and how Bulgaria is run when it has a strong tsar relative to a weak tsar. And it's hard to say whether the boyars at any given time would prefer to have a strong tsar who would strengthen the country and give them lots of opportunities to plunder or whether they'd want one that they could control. So, yeah, it's, it's a little up in the air, but in any case, they did support Konstantin Tich. At the very least, he was their candidate. So now, we've got a three-way civil war. But it didn't start right away. In fact, throughout 1257, things were actually pretty quiet. Then, in 1258, to strengthen his position, Konstantin Tich married into the Asen dynasty. In particular, he married the daughter of the Emperor of Nicaea. This girl's mother was the daughter of Ivanasen II, and so this made Ivanasen II Constantine's grandfather-in-law after the marriage. So at this point, if you haven't already, I highly recommend you check out the family tree of the Asen, uh, of the Asen dynasty on the podcast website, because 
even I can barely keep all these uh, family connections straight. Uh, the Austin dynasty goes all over the place and all kinds of branches end up with their own uh, marriages and their own tsars and it's all very complicated. So uh, the family tree will make it much simpler. So at this point, for reasons I also find a bit confusing, Mitso decides to attack Nicaea instead of trying to, I don't know, take over Ternovo and take the, the, the crown in Bulgaria. Nope, instead goes to Nicaea. Now, maybe this was to prove his military credentials, but somewhat unsurprisingly, it fails utterly. The invasion goes nowhere, and his backers left him and f- let him kind of flee uh, and support Constantine instead. So all the people who wanted Mitsoasen to be Tsar, they abandon him the moment he loses that war. He flees to, uh, to Preslav and ultimately to Nesebar on the Black Sea, but uh, we'll get to that much later in this episode. So finally, seeing that his claim was lost, uh, he actually asks for asylum. In exchange, he gives Bulgarian territory that he controls to Nicaea. And he was given lands to settle in Anatolia, just below the Hellespont, where ancient Troy used to be. Now the three rival claimants are reduced to only two. We've got Rostislav and we have Constantine. In 1259, Rostislav finally makes his own move. He mounts another invasion of Bulgaria with the assistance of his Hungarian backers in an attempt to take Turnival and the throne. However, this also really goes nowhere very quickly, and Rostislav is back in Vidin within a year. In 1260, the king of Hungary, Bela IV, runs off to Moravia, which is now part of Czechia, to prop up his son against a rebellion there. Rostislav goes to assist him, but Rostislav's army is utterly routed. So while Rostislav is distracted up way north helping the Hungarians, Constantine retakes Vidin and actually attempts to invade the Banat of Severin, which is that territory up in what's now Romania. It's been traded between Hungary and Bulgaria a couple times. Um, But Constantine's attempt is kind of foiled. He's repulsed. But he still takes Vidin, and that's a pretty serious victory against the Hungarians and Rostislav. Vidin is a very powerful fortress that dominates that portion of the Danube. But Bela IV, well, he's no pushover. And the invasion of his territory just infuriates him. So in 1261, well, of course, it's time for his revenge. Bela, Rostislav, and Bela's son and heir, Stephen, all invade Bulgaria together in a sort of vengeful fury. Vidin is retaken, and some other Bulgarian territories along the Danube are devastated. Constantine refuses to engage them. He doesn't think he can win a pitched battle. And so, after you know pillaging and plunging and taking what they like, the Hungarians go home within the year. So now we've got the status quo once again. Rostislav controls Vidin, backed by the Hungarians, and Constantine is in Tornoval. Just Mitsoasen is off doing something else. But what's really changed is that Rostislav's insistence on being Tsar of Bulgaria. Because by this point, he actually more or less stops using the title and appears to have given up in his attempts to take Turnival. But still, Bulgarian territory has been lost and Hungary seems unlikely to become an ally again anytime soon, leaving Bulgaria in a position to either seek an alliance with the hated and powerful Nicaeans or to really risk being surrounded by powerful enemies. Ah, but if only it were that simple, because 
Actually, while Bulgaria had been distracted with its three Tsars and its Hungarian quarrels, a lot had been happening, specifically to the south. Now, I don't want to go in too many details, uh, but they're, you know, they're a bit mind-numbing. But in short, Nicaea is initially doing very well. It's retaking territory in Macedonia in northern Greece against Epirus, remember another Greek successor state, a Byzantine successor state. But the death of the emperor of Nicaea and the weakness of the young man who replaces him leads to a kind of palace coup and quite a bit of chaos. In this context, Michael of Epirus throws together an anti-Nicaean coalition. However, that coalition loses a succession of battles in 1259, leading the Nicaeans to actually advance even farther down the Adriatic coast, conquering most of Macedonia along the way. Defections with the, within the Epirate forces cause them to collapse, and Michael has to flee with his troops to an island in order to escape the Nicaean onslaught. So this is really the end of the kind of recently resurgent despotate of Epirus, right? They were here, and then they went away, and then they're here again, they've gone away again, they're all over the place. But this puts Nicaea in a position as the sole kind of remaining Byzantine successor state. They're in a very powerful position, and... Well, we'll see what they do with it. Except, okay, you thought it was that simple. But Epirus is definitely weakened, but Michael does have local support, and he is going to retake a lot of that area from Nicaea within the year and retake most of, most of Thessaly afterwards. So, okay, Epirus is going to be around for a while longer. But the important thing here is that Nicaea is doing really, really well. This means, of course, that they're ready to make another attempt at Constantinople and the still weakened Latin Empire. So notice we haven't mentioned the Latin Empire in a while. Well, that's for good reason, because they're so weak they have no ability to do much of anything or project any power. So to accomplish this, Nicaea convinces Bulgaria to renew their alliance. So as I mentioned, Tsar Constantine Tich, well, he didn't really have much of a choice. He had no other friends in the region. I mean, if Hungary couldn't be his friend, and uh, you know the old Kuman state up where the Mongols went in isn't there anymore, and Serbia is not super friendly, well, what else is Bulgaria supposed to do? So, Constantine accepts an alliance with the Nicaeans, even though this means helping them reestablish the Byzantine Empire, which of course is the greatest frenemy Bulgaria's ever had, and an almost constant threat to Bulgaria's existence. So, it's just sort of the... I don't know, the weirdness of geopolitics that Bulgaria is forced into a situation to help in the reestablishment of a state that will probably try to destroy it. Awkward. But what are they going to do? So Nicaea also manages to conclude an alliance with the naval power of Italian Genoa. Now, this showed at the time that they were serious about making an attempt to destroy the Latin Empire because previous attempts without serious naval power offered by Genoa in this case, were really doomed to failure. We've seen time and time again that land armies by themselves just cannot take Constantinople because the city has access to the sea. It can get resupplied. It can, you know, fish. It's really hard to, to lay siege to it because it can just get all the food and supplies at once. And those land walls are just unbelievably powerful. But with Genoa on its side and Venice, of course, allied with the Latin Empire because they're both Catholics, well, they stand a chance to maybe take Constantinople. So Nicaea is ready, right? 
it's strong it's triumphant in the balkans doing very well in anatolia as well it's got the naval power it needs it's got everything it needs to take on the latin empire to smash it to retake constantinople and genoa is really eager to get this done because okay i mentioned that the uh, the venetians are allies with the latin empire because they're both catholic truth is genoa is catholic too but genoa hates venice and so to hell with the religious connection they'll help out the orthodox greeks greeks if it means helping to kind of give their naval trading ar- arrival venice a black eye so yeah and, and basically so if genoa helps take constantinople genoa will get very very advantageous trading rights so they've got a strong incentive here it's a lot of politics so by july 25th of 1261 Everything necessary to make a major attack on Constantinople is more or less in place. And at that time, a Nicene general named Alexius, see if I can get his name right, Strategiopolis, was engaged in some reconnaissance around the city. And while reconnoitering, he received some intelligence that the Frankish soldiers who usually garrisoned the city were not there. Seeing his opportunity, he acted completely without orders from the emperor in Nicaea or really anyone else. He just moves on the city. When they get there, some of his soldiers manage to enter the city through a passageway and open the gates, and his soldiers pour in, receiving an overjoyed welcome from the population of the city. Because remember, even though the Latins had taken control of Constantinople for more than half a century, its population was still overwhelmingly Greek in language and Orthodox in religion. So it's not surprising that they welcome what they saw as their liberation. And that's it. Did you, did you catch it? The Latin Empire is gone. The Latin Empire is no more. That was it. It wasn't a huge, crazy siege, big, dramatic thing. No, the, this uh, army was just sort of hanging out in the neighborhood, saw that the door was unlocked, rushed in there, and boom, that was it. And, I mean, okay, John Fine, of course, my favorite source for this period, he puts it really well. He just makes it very succinct. He says, quote, Thus, after 57 years of Latin rule, Constantinople was taken by accident, without a battle or even a plan. End quote. You'll notice it's actually a bit of a pattern. Constantinople is actually rarely taken by force. Usually the city... You know, when like a, a rival Byzantine emperor or someone takes it, falls prey to the ravages of dumb luck. Uh, because it is such a powerful fortress that taking it by force is so, so difficult. But hey, if the door's unlocked, the door's unlocked and you can just get right in there. Well, Emperor Baldwin II, he flees on a Venetian ship while messengers rush to Nicaea to inform Emperor Michael VIII Palaiologos that the Byzantine throne is open to him. I mean, you can imagine his shock. Uh, he wasn't expecting this. No one was. And so first, the first person who receives word of this is his sister. And she rushes to wake him up right at sunrise. And he, somewhat understandably, doesn't believe the news. He's like, yeah, yeah, sure. You, you took Constantinople and we're reinstating the Byzantine Empire. Whatever. Let me sleep another hour. No, doesn't believe her. Because, yeah, who, who would have thought it would be this easy to take Constantinople? I mean, they had tried before. It had been 57 years. There's no reason to think that everything had just happened this simply. But when the crown and the sword, which Baldwin had abandoned, arrived in the palace of the emperor in Nicaea, well, he started to believe. 
and he wasted no time rushing to the city, eager to reinstate the Byzantine Empire with himself as its new emperor. And so, Byzantium was restored in every way. Laws, customs, damaged buildings were repaired, everything was restored to more or less as it had been before the Latin conquest. The recovery was hurried because Michael knew how vulnerable the city really was. Its population had dwindled to only 35,000 people. And though Nicaea was very strong, it was also possible that his taking of the city could provoke a major counterattack, a major attempt by the Catholic West to strike and reestablish the Latin Empire. But Michael also had another problem back in Nicaea. You see, Ivanus II's grandson, John IV, was also emperor back in Nicaea. He had risen to that rank when his father died in 1258, and he was only seven years old. Really, what's the deal with seven-year-olds taking over empires around this time? It's, it's a weird pattern. But anyways, within a few years, the older Michael made himself co-emperor with the young boy. But the, by this point, you know, the stakes had risen, and the situation was fundamentally different because now it wasn't just Emperor of Nicaea, but Emperor of Byzantium. And Michael was not terribly interested in sharing his title and power with the little John. So this wouldn't do. So what did Michael do? Well, he had poor John blinded and sent to a monastery. His sisters were married away to foreigners, dispersing the family and preventing it from really becoming a threat to Michael. And so just like that, the Bulgarian Tsars once again missed the chance for their progeny, their children and ancestors to sit on the throne in Constantinople. It just never works out for him. Ah, but John, little John, blinded sent to a monastery, was not just the grandson of Ivanus II. He was also the brother-in-law of the current Tsar Constantine, because Constantine had married the sister, or the, sorry, granddaughter of Ivanus II. So actually maybe, oh, not brother-in-law, but like uncle-in-law. Anyways, again, that's why you should look at the family tree on the website. This is just too complicated to keep in your head. But a point is, this was not simply the murder of some distant relative. This was the murder of a close family member of the Bulgarian royal family. And so it shouldn't exactly be shocking that Tsar Constantine was not thrilled that his family member had been blinded and sent to a monastery. And so with the reestablishment of the Byzantine Empire, the geopolitical situation in the Balkans was now brand new once again. And the actions of the new emperor in Constantinople pretty well decided that Bulgaria would fall on the anti-Byzantium side of things. So the seemingly eternal rivalry between Bulgaria and Byzantium was back on. Now, I think this is a good moment to take a quick step back and see, okay, what is the Balkan and kind of Eastern Mediterranean world look like right now. Now, for reference, of course, there is a map on the website, bghistorypodcast.com, so check that out. But otherwise, you can listen and get a good idea. Starting from the east, you've got a vast swath of Anatolia, recently dominated for quite a long time by the Seljuk Turks, but now they were overthrown by the Mongols. Though remember, the Mongols weren't so much into kind of settling the areas they conquered, and so even though the Mongols were ruling things here, the Seljuks and those Turkic peoples are still a large portion of the population in the region. Then, we've got the Byzantine Empire, dominating much of Western Anatolia and a strip of the Balkans, running all the way across to the Adriatic, all reconquered from the despotate of Epirus. 
But Epirus still holds on as an independent Greek state, kind of hugging the Adriatic coast down to the Gulf of Corinth. The last of the Latin states to hold some power is in southern Greece, uh, on the Peloponnesus. Then Venice controls many of the islands in the Aegean. And to the north, we've got Bulgaria, Serbia, Hungary, and the Mongol Tatar. Remember, they're pretty much the same, but we gradually call them Tatars. Golden Horde, which is dominating what used to be the Kievan Rus and will eventually become Russia. But within Bulgaria, you've also got your little divisions of power. The southeast, uh, again, I mentioned like the future of Mitzel, but at this point he's still hanging out in the southeast. Um, you have Jacob Svetoslav, who is another boyar, though also of Russian origin. Now, he manages to carve out a semi-autonomous region for himself centered around Vidin, following actually the death of Rostislav in 1262. So Rostislav dies, and this Bulgarian boyar kind of sets himself up here. We're not really sure when things transfer from the Hungarians. It's all very confusing, and it jumps back and forth a lot. But what you need to know is Rostislav gives up his title of Tsar of Bulgaria and dies, and now we've got Jacob Sletislav there. So, in other words, Bulgaria is still very divided. It's very weak, and it's been more than two decades since the death of Ivanasen II. But in those two decades, with children on the throne, followed by usurpers and pretenders born out of the country's internal divisions, Bulgaria has been condemned to struggle with itself and with its neighbors. It could, it could get away with this kind of internal division in a world where little Byzantine successor states fight endlessly with the Latin Empire and with each other, while crusade after crusade causes further chaos in the Eastern world. But the Byzantines are back. The major biggest kind of crusades are more or less over. That world that allowed Bulgaria to be so weak is changing fast, and the new world seems much less forgiving. So now back to Constantine and Michael, the two emperors. Remember just a moment ago, I talked about the one last remaining bit of the Latin Empire holding out in southern Greece? Well, that was the Principality of Archaea. In 1263, Emperor Michael set out to conquer it and finally destroy the last, last remnants of the Latins. Venice, unsurprisingly, came to the aid of its final Latin ally, while Genoa and Epirus fought with the Byzantines. Mitso, seeing this as a chance to work with the Byzantines and get back on the throne, also worked with them, while Jacob Svetoslav remained loyal to Constantine. So, while battles raged in Greece and on the high seas, Constantine decided to take his first action against the Byzantines, still angry about the death of his family member, so he invades Thrace, taking Philippopolis and Stanimaka, which is now called Asenovgrad, which is a city just south of Plovdiv at the entrance to the Rudopi Mountains. It's a nice little place. Now it's famous for making wedding dresses. No idea why, but it's a pleasant enough place to pass through. Anyways, Bulgarian tour advice. So Mitso is defeated, and he flees to the Black Sea coast. So I mentioned that before. This is the proper moment when he's really defeated. Uh, he takes up residence in Masambria, which is now Nasebr, and he begs for Byzantine assistance. Because he, well, he was their ally before, and he lost ally with them, so he figures they should help him. Everything is going pretty well for the Bulgarians. They took all this territory in Thrace until the next year, when the Byzantine counterattack comes. That year, in a lightning campaign, the Byzantine army retook Philippopolis and Stanimaka before crossing the country to attack Jacob Svetislav in Vidin. Jacob couldn't resist on his own and was forced to seek Hungarian assistance. 
Now, this resulted in him successfully beating off the Byzantines, but it also forced him to swear fealty to Hungarian King Bela IV. Thus, the region under his control was again lost to Hungary. Meanwhile, another Byzantine army moves up the Black Sea coast and captures every major city and fortress, rescuing Mitzo and giving him land in Anatolia, like I mentioned. Now, Constantine was in a terrible position. Sure, the Byzantine invasion of the Principality of Archaea was going terribly, but the Byzantines were still clearly strong enough to crush little Bulgaria. The usual technique of using marriage alliances and playing Catholic and Orthodox countries against one another wasn't working. Because, well, Hungary was also an enemy. They, they were fighting over Vidin, a lot of these territories. So Constantine was forced to look elsewhere. Well, it was a brave new world, and this brave new world of Europe called for new strategies. So he actually looked to the Tatars of the Golden Horde because, now this is interesting, remember, Bulgaria had been paying them tribute all this time. It was still technically kind of subservient. They had sworn fealty to them, even though, again, the, the Mongols, the Tatars, they rule with a light hand. So as long as Bulgaria keeps sending the cash, they don't really get involved. But this was enough for them to get involved. So... Essentially, the stars were aligned for this. It was time for the Tatars to move in and make their presence felt. Because in addition to Constantine asking for it, a former Seljuk ruler, who had ironically lost his throne when the Mongols destroyed the Seljuk Sultanate of Rum in Anatolia, oddly enough, he's now asking a different group of Mongols for help, this guy named Kaikaus II, well, he wants the Tatars to help him attack Byzantium and move down and get his throne back. Honestly, how the Mongol presence in Anatolia figures into all this stuff, I don't really know. It's a bit confusing that he's asking some Mongols to attack the Byzantines to retake his throne, which he lost to other Mongols. But he's got like an uncle who's a good uh, good friend who's very powerful uh, amongst the Golden Horde. And so his uncle says, all right, we'll do you a favor. We'll help out our Bulgarian kind of, uh, I don't know what you'd call them, like subservient uh, nations. And so they send an army. And so just like that, a huge Tatar army crosses the frozen Danube in 1264 and joins with Bulgarian forces to sweep down into Byzantine territory. Now, they manage to ambush Emperor Michael and very nearly capture him, but he gets away. Still, the invasion was successful. It took some Byzantine cities, it took some plunder, uh, though honestly, it mostly just they stole a lot of stuff, and it didn't have any kind of major long-term effects for Bulgaria. But still, as John Fine put it, Constantine's position was really strengthened by the newly established threat of another Tatar invasion. So, okay, you know, Bulgaria may not have all the friends of the world, but if you try to invade it, you know, they've got these Tatars behind them who are pretty mean guys, and you don't want to mess with them. That same year, in 1264, a civil war also broke out in Hungary between Bela IV and his son Stephen V. The chaos and uncertainty of that war gave Jacob Svetoslav the opportunity to renegotiate his position, maintaining his autonomy but returning his loyalty to Bulgaria. Now this may not seem like a big deal, but Bulgaria is pretty weak at this time, and the troops uh, that they would get and the, the kind of taxes they would get would be nice. So, responding to this, you know, bringing this in, Bulgaria decides to also take advantage of the chaos in Hungary and troops from Vidin and the rest of Bulgaria raid Hungary in 1265, further cementing Svetoslav's position as a Bulgarian and not a Hungarian vassal. But just like happened with the Byzantines in 1266, 
things changed. The Civil War ended in a victory for the son, Stephen V, who then proceeds to attack Bulgaria and lay siege to Vidin to get his revenge. The Hungarian armies also invade and defeat Bulgaria proper. Ultimately, this all led to Hungary once again gaining control of Vidin and the area around it, though remarkably, Svetoslav is allowed to maintain his rule there. So I kind of mentioned how this Vidin territory for a long time is just going back and forth and back and forth between Hungary and Bulgaria. But unfortunately, this is a time of weakness in Bulgaria, and minus that civil war, it's really a time of strength for Hungary. The Hungarian Empire is pretty big at this moment. Sorry, the Hungarian Kingdom. So even worse than all this, the Khan who had ruled the Golden Horde as Bulgaria's sovereign, died in 1265, really lessening the likelihood of the Golden Horde coming to Bulgaria's rescue. Because in addition to the guy who was doing it all dying, this also began a gradual process of the Golden Horde breaking apart into smaller states as the central authority began to dwindle. Also around this time, Constantine managed to fall from his horse and was paralyzed from the waist down, further harming his ability to project leadership and credibility in front of the boyars and the people of Bulgaria. So in this sense, when we look around at this moment, Bulgaria is more or less friendless. Hungary, the more immediate of the Tatar states in the north, Serbia and the Byzantines are all enemies. But one ray of hope does come out of this darkness. Because in 1267, a grand anti-Byzantine alliance is being organized by Charles I of Sicily and the former Latin emperor himself, Baldwin II. Bulgaria may not have been powerful at this moment, but, but, but the Byzantine emperor Michael had no interest in allowing Bulgaria to join this alliance, right? Because I mentioned a second ago that Michael is very afraid of some big Western alliance coming in on a new crusade to reestablish the Latin Empire, and he does not want Bulgaria to be involved. So Michael offers the recently widowed Constantine his niece's hand in marriage. To sweeten the deal, as part of the dowry, Constantine was promised the Black Sea cities of Masambria and Anchialos if his new wife gave birth to a son. However, when their son Michael was born in 1270, eh, the emperor decided that he wasn't going to go through with it. This betrayal meant that those that brief, brief moment of good relations between Turnovo and Constantinople were over. Constantine sent word that he was ready to support the anti-Byzantine alliance. But what exactly is that going to mean? What is this alliance going to look like? Could a weakened Bulgaria ruled by a mostly paralyzed Tsar stand a chance against the Byzantines or any of its other enemies surrounding it? And yeah, would this anti-Byzantine alliance come to anything substantial? Is this going to be another end to the Byzantine Empire? Well, check out next episode and you'll hear all about it. This episode was written and produced by me, Eric Halsey, with some research help from Stanimir Bogdanov. The theme music, as always, is written and performed by Teddy Raven. As always, yeah, like us on Facebook, leave us a review, all that great stuff. Send me an email, uh, like the Facebook page. You know what to do. Check it all out and uh, get in touch. Let me know if there's anything you'd like to change, anything you like about the podcast, don't like about it. Feedback's always useful. In the meantime, uspech, or in English, good luck. <laughs>